Welcome to the Grand Point Church Podcast. We're a church serving the South Central Pennsylvania area with a mission to help as many people as possible take their next steps to find and follow Jesus. If you aren't already, make sure to connect with us online through social media or at grandpoint.church and be sure to let us know how God is moving in your life. Now let's check out this week's message from Pastor Chad. Thank you for joining us again this morning. We're in the middle of a series called The View. And whether you're watching from at home or whether you're here in the house, I just want to say we are extremely grateful uh, that you've chosen to be with us. I I don't know about you, but this series has been incredible, hasn't it? You know, we were talking in our house last night how at some point in everybody's life, they wrestle with this issue of worldview. This issue of how do they see and deal with the world around them. As we began this series several weeks ago, we started with the idea that the worldview is this. It's the lens through which we view reality and make sense of life and the world around us. You know, when we stop and think about that, all of us have a different worldview. As we've gone through this series, it's been kind of fun as we process it even uh, in our house and even with other people because what I realize is Very few of us agree on everything. Have you ever noticed that? You know, we all see it a little differently. We all wrestle with with life and the way we see it, the way we view it, the way we respond to it. It's all different. You know, it, it comes down to the point of how do I frame what is happening? You know, how do I view everything that's going on in the world and in my life, make sense of it, and walk forward with my life with actions and attitudes and responses to what's happening. The key verse that we've honed in on through this series is Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says this, see see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. I want to stop there just for a second because one of the things that I've realized through this series is that I can take myself captive by my thoughts. You know, there are things that I say I believe, but yet when it comes down to practice or comes down to uh, the way I respond, it may not be congruent with what I say. And what I've realized with that is that, you know, I'm ultimately taking myself captive by those thoughts, by those attitudes, by those actions. Not according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, what I've realized is that if I want to truly have what we call that biblical worldview, I have to look to Christ for the answers. You know, this series has walked us through four weeks of some pretty tough conversations. You know, the idea of what is a biblical worldview We came to the conclusion that we as Grand Point Church want to use Scripture as the lens through which we view reality and make sense of the world around us. You know, God is a good God. And what I believe is that he knows reality, life, and the world around me even better than I do. You know, that's the basis that we come with. And so when we begin to do that, we have to choose to allow God's word to dictate our worldview. We have to allow his word, not our feelings, our perceptions, or our limited view of what is happening in our life and the things around us. 
You know, that first week kind of set the stage for everything that was to come. The second week, we looked at the idea, is there absolute truth, or is it all just kind of relative? We came to the conclusion that we have an absolute truth with God, and the source of that truth is found in him and in his word. You know, I don't look and say, well, this is what I think today, and therefore I'm going to act this way. We say, no, what we believe is God's word is true, and it can show us how to live and how to respond to the world around us. In week number three, we talked about the idea of God's sovereignty. Is it sovereign or is he limited? And we wrestled through the tension of there's evil in the world, but there's a good God who works it for his good. And we had to wrestle with that tension because sometimes it's difficult to pull those two ideas together. But what we wanted to rest in was the fact that God is working all things together for his good and according to his purposes, even if I don't see that around me. Last week, we looked at the idea of it was the beginning of time and the creation of man. Was it accidental or was it intentional? We believe that God created with intentionality. And we also believe that it was very good. You know, when he created it, was, it was the best that it could be. And after the creation, it brings us to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about man. Is man good or is man bad? You know, this has been one of those questions that has, that has been wrestled through for centuries and centuries and centuries. You know, is, is man good generally? And, you know, it's just things that happen and, you know, that kind of causes us to become bad. Or is there something within us that really were just bad? You know, I approach this subject with a little fear. And the reason is this, because if you only listen to half my message, if you're watching online, you're going to want to throw something at your TV, and then you won't hear the last half the message. Or if you're sitting here, you're going to want to run down the aisle and beat the snot out of me because of the fact that you may not like what I say. But can I say two things to that? One is I don't have enough money to replace everybody's TV, so please don't do that. And secondly, I bruise easily, and so please don't come running up and beat the snot out of me. But can we do this? Can we just agree together that we're going to stick together to the end of the message? Because I believe if we have the proper view of man, it gives us the ultimate hope for the future and for eternity. When we look at this idea of the worldview of man and our existence and the idea of are we good or bad, I want us to understand that oftentimes our determination of this is based on several things. The first thing we may base it on is how the world around us is acting. You know, when we look around, we see things that we don't like. We see people responding in ways that cause us to become angry or frustrated or hurt. And because of that, we may respond and we may form a worldview based on what we see. There are times where also we may base our worldview on how we feel. You know, when I look around and I look at my kids, and as Cressa said, our kids are cute, at least most of them are. Um, you know, as we look around and see them, we may come to one view of our kids because actually they're pretty good. And we love them a whole lot. We may look around and we may make our worldview based on how people have treated us. There are many here who are walking in this week realizing that people have treated you 
in a way that you don't like. They treated you in ways that harm you, that stunt your growth, that, that cause you not to see the value that God intends you to be. Ultimately, if we're not careful, we begin asking the question, is man good or bad, based on the perceived reality of our worldview. And this morning, I want to challenge us with a biblical worldview that may cause us to look at ourselves and those around us a little differently. When we kind of dive into the worldview, we realize there's several different predominant thoughts that kind of run around this idea of, is man good or bad? The first kind of idea that some people have is that man is God. Ultimately, what that entails is the idea that man is becoming a God himself. You know, he just has to take the time to continually improve himself. That the reality of him being a God is realized. You know, when I think of that worldview and I think of how long it will take me to get to that point, it's pretty hopeless, isn't it? You know, if I realize I have to improve myself to that point, I've lived life long enough to realize that's probably not going to happen. You know, I wake up in the morning and somebody makes me frustrated and I still have bouts of anger. You know, I get frustrated with the people, the way they respond to me, and I still want to check them or write them off. So I realize if we're going to hold that world view that man is ultimately becoming a god, what happens is this, that I have a limited view and a limited hope of eternity. The second thing that I think probably is more predominant, and if I'm not careful, kind of, kind of causes my thinking to change a little bit, is the idea that man is graded on the curve. You know what grading on the curve is? How many of you, when you were in school, loved when the teacher graded on the curve? You know, I, I love that. I love that. I was in a, a school that didn't have a lot of bright kids, uh, as you can tell. <laughs> but whenever the teacher said, hey, you know what, I'm going to give you the same exam, but I'm grading on the curve. It was like we all got together and said, okay, I don't care how smart you are, nobody get above a B. Because if nobody gets above a B, that means I'm getting a B plus in the class because the teacher is grading on the curve because we're kind of just looking at each other and basing our worth on the collective whole. You know, I realize sometimes our view of man, good or bad, is graded on the curve. Our idea of good or bad is generally viewed in light of society or societal norms. I believe this concept, probably more than the other, has crept its way into the life of a believer. You know, we determine our value based on how we see those around us. You know, when we begin to watch the news or we begin to watch what's happening in the world around us, we find ourselves saying this, well, at least I'm not that bad. You know, at least I'm not like so-and-so. You know, it's kind of funny because in our family, in my family, we always have that one black sheep. You know, it's kind of that one who seems to take a different path than everyone else. But it's kind of funny because sometimes if we're not careful, we begin to evaluate ourselves by that sibling or spouse or brother or sister or friend who may not quite be where we are. You know, sometimes we take a look and we allow society to determine our value, whether we're good 
or bad based on the societal norms that are happening. The problem with this is every society has a different norm. You know, when I traveled to India, they believe differently than we do. You know, their view of good and evil and right and wrong isn't at the same place that we are. In fact, we just go by different generations, and that changes. Have you ever caught yourself saying this? If grandma knew that I, she would roll over in her grave. You know, ultimately, when we do that, what we're saying is we look at it a little differently. It may not be right or wrong, but according to that society, that norm, I would be judged. The problem with that is it's a moving target. You know, I can never truly know, am I good or am I bad? Am, am I, am I going to meet the standard or am I not? The third thing that we see in this idea of grading on the curve is that we're just a product of our society. You know, we're all generally good in, in our upbringing and those things that we experience and those things that, that, we, that we see. That's what causes us to be either good or bad, and it's almost like we're neutral moral agents until our world presses in around us. You know, sometimes we'll say, no, nah, we really don't believe that, but the problem is we don't act that way. Have you ever caught yourself saying something like this? It's not my fault. My brother made me do it. You know, in our house, that, that was the common answer, isn't it? Why did you hit your brother? Because he made me mad. You know, while we laugh at that because kids do it, can I tell you as an adult, I do it too. You know what? I wouldn't have broke the law if it would have been a good law. Oh. I wouldn't have yelled at my spouse if they wouldn't have fill in the blank. You know, ultimately the root of those statements is this. The root of those statements is that I'm just a product of my society, and my, the society around me causes me to act in a certain way. I believe that there's a third worldview that's probably, not probably, it is a biblical worldview that we can live by, and it's this, that man is corrupt and has the hope of a savior. You know, when we stop and think about that, when we first think about that statement, man is corrupt. I don't like that. I don't like the idea that there might be something bad in me. In fact, I go to great lengths to hide the things I don't like about myself. Don't you? You know, do you ever uh, put on clothes that hide a few extra pounds? I don't like it, so I hide it. You know what? I don't hope that people don't know how insecure I am. So what am I going to do? I'm going to put on social media the things that I want them to see and the things that I want them to perceive me to be. But the reality is this, that each one of us are corrupt, but we have a hope that is greater than any hope in the world because of the fact that there's a Savior who loves us. When we look at this, there's two statements that I hold in tension when it comes to this biblical worldview. And that's this, that we truly cannot truly know who we are until we understand who God is. You know, we truly can't understand ourselves unless we have the right picture of God. 
And there's a second statement that almost seems the opposite, but they work together, and that's this. That we cannot fully understand who God is until we understand who we are. This morning, I want to kind of dive into this idea and talk about this idea of man's corruption and God's goodness and the hope of a Savior. But in order to do this, we have to understand that, that there's an overarching narrative of Scripture that brings us to an understanding of where we are. You know, every great story has a narrative, doesn't it? Every great story has kind of a, a theme that it follows. Lawrence talked about that a little bit last week. And did you guys hear that next week starts Hallmark's 41 Weeks Till Christmas series? I'm just kidding. They're not doing that. But if you've ever watched a Hallmark movie, you realize there's an overarching narrative through every movie. I'm telling you, Hallmark Channel is a racket. It's the same story written five different ways, and it goes like this. The movie starts off, and life is good. You know, whoever it is, they walk through life not oblivious to what's going on, and life is good. But then a crisis happens that brings about pain or uncomfortableness or suffering or loss of love, usually loss of love, and it just kind of goes on, and they spend the next hour trying to fix it themselves. And sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's just boring. But either way, they're trying to fix the pain and suffering that's there. And then at the hour and 42 minute mark, exactly, <laughs> there's a failure of crisis that happens that resolves and there is a hero that walks away and saves the day and everyone lives happily ever after. Now, if you've never watched a Hallmark movie, you don't have to because you just got the gist of it. The truth of that is scripture is very similar. It has a narrative. When we look in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see a creation that is just incredible. A creation that, 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 that God loves. A creation that is perfect. And then something happened. And we understand the corruption of man. In fact, we see that in the passage we're going to look at today. And in verse 9 of this passage, it says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. You know, when we look at that passage, it makes it, pretty clear intrinsically what we are it talks about this idea that we are all under sin and i love that phrase under sin because it's the idea of we're all under a weight that is too great for us it's a weight that we can't carry a weight that we can't bear now i know you can't tell by looking but i have not lifted weights since high school you know i when we were in high school we had this PE class where we had to lift weights, and I always hated it because I could never lift anything. I was like a toothpick. And so I would go under, and my biggest fear, I mean, I would have nightmares, is that the bar would fall and I couldn't get it off my chest. You know, it's that idea that the weight would be so great, I couldn't move it. And ultimately, when this passage talks about that we're under the weight of sin, it's something that we can't move, something that we can't shake, something that we in and of ourselves cannot change. It goes on to say that none are righteous. 
That word righteous actually helps us understand the standard by which we're going to be judged, the standard by which we must live, the standard of what good is. And as we learn in that passage, that standard is the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of who he is, the perfection of the sum total of all of his attributes and all of the truth found in God's word about himself. And we realize this. There's nothing I can do of myself to please him. It says no one understands. No one can comprehend it. We need the help and hope of something in order to fix it. And then no one seeks it. It's not of our own ability. It's actually out of our hands and out of our ability to change. But how did this happen in our lives? How did we get to the point where we're like this? And ultimately, we alluded to it last week when we talked about the fall of man in Genesis chapter 2. It said that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, and that was the sixth day. You know, when we get that picture in Genesis chapter 2, it's pretty incredible. Because man is walking with God without sin. There's nothing hindering that relationship. There's no weight of sin. We're truly understanding. And in fact, it talked about Adam seeking God in the cool of the garden because they were in relationship with each other. But the problem is this. That we talk about that, 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 that crisis that comes in that messes everything up. For our narrative, it's called sin. You know, Adam and Eve were in the garden. And God said, you can enjoy the whole earth. You can enjoy everything that's here. You can eat off any tree that you want. In fact, you don't even have to work for it. All you have to do is tend the gardens and pick the fruit. There's no weeds. There's nothing. Just enjoy it. But don't eat from one tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat it. Now, I don't know about you, but what happens if somebody tells you you can't do something? If you're anything like me, it's like, tell me not to do something, and what am I going to do? I'm going to do it. In fact, I'm on a diet right now, and um, I'm trying to shed a few pounds uh, to get ready for summer. And as, as I'm in this, one of the things that I've committed to cut out is sweets. And the other day, I went to my daughter's house to let her dogs out, and you know what was at their house? Sugar cookies with icing. Now, in my mind, I told myself, you can't have the cookie. You know what I did? It was only one cookie. But you know what? I ate the cookie. You know, before we get too mad at Adam and Eve, I would say this. Any one of us in the garden would have made the same choice. Each, any one of us would have come to that place, but there's actually a deeper theological truth there because in, in the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, it teaches us that in Adam, as the first man, we all sinned. Ultimately, there is something intrinsically passed through human nature that causes each one of us at the time of birth to be sinful. That sin brought about a curse that is pretty incredible. 
In the next chapter, what we see is that the sin of mankind brought about that curse. In verse 16, he says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So I've never had a baby. I know that may be a dust statement, but I can tell you, it looks like it hurts. I was in the room when our three kids were born, and it looks like it hurts. A result of the curse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Why do we have difficulty in our marriages? Because of sin. You have listened, Adam. You have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of, I have commanded you. You shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Why is work so difficult? Because of sin. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Why do I have to mow my grass and pull weeds? Because of sin. By the sweat of the face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For from the ground, for you were made from dust, and to dust you shall return. Ultimately, see, we see that sin puts a weight on us that's pretty incredible. You know, Scripture teaches clearly that left to ourselves, we're corrupt. Now, we all probably understand that. We all probably look around and say that's true, but then life happens and things push back. You know, one of those pushback moments for me, well, let me illustrate this way. One of those pushback moments for me was the birth of my kids. You know, when your kids are born, there's something inside, inside you that just kind of melts, isn't there? Well, when our kids were born, there was something that they were given even before they were born by their grandmother, and that was their bears. You know, if you look at these bears, I'm going to tell you, they're pretty crusty. They're pretty, you know, you're like, those are the ugliest bears in the world. I would say this, these are the most loved bears in the world. In fact, one of them's head's about ready to fall off, and my wife threatened me that if it does, I'm in trouble. But, you know, I, I wish these bears could talk. You know, these bears have been through friends that are angry with them. They've been through being mad at mom and dad. They've been through sickness and They've been through uh, arguments. They've been through the best of times. They've been through the worst. Hey, it could be a Hallmark movie. <laughs> but you know, these bears have been through a lot. You know, they've sat with them when they were in trouble. You know, my daughter's here, and this is hers, and, and she used to suck on the arm of this thing like it was going out of style. But you know, the, the thing about these bears is this. They were actually given to them at the moment of birth. In fact, they went in the warmers with the boys when they were wheeled out of the, the birthing room. And, and whenever anybody picked them up, this was in their arms. All three of our kids, one of them. And when I was standing in the hospital, I believe it was my professor in college, and I, I was trying to remember this week who it was, so I'm going to give him credit for it. But Dr. Turk looked at me, and he said, Chad... You have perfect twin boys. And I looked and thought, yeah, Tammy and I did pretty good. You know, we lucked out. They're actually cute. First cute babies that ever came. And as I held them, he looked at me and said, Chad, they're perfect sinners. And you have the hope that they need for life. 
You need to help them understand as they navigate their early years that their true hope is not in you and as a dad, is not in, at the time, these bears. But their hope is in Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, each one of us need to come to that place where we realize that man is in need of a Savior and there is the hope of redemption In Romans chapter 3, that passage continues and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That righteousness, that standard of righteousness that we have, we fall short of that. But it goes on to say this, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The hope that we have is the redemption that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, when we begin to look at this, we have to understand that righteousness is possible. It's possible that we can turn from the corrupt life that we, we live to a righteousness that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. It says that it's through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We have the ability to choose his path rather than our own. And it says it's for all who believe. It's freely offered to everyone. You know, I know there are people here today who would say, but Chad, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand how my family looks at me. You don't understand the difficulties that are in my life right now. And I would answer, you know what? I don't. I don't fully understand them. I'm not feeling the same weight of them that you are. But I can tell you this, there is hope in Jesus Christ. When we choose to say, I'm not going to follow my path, but I'm going to choose to follow his, our life can begin to change. You know, when we begin to look at that, There comes a point where we must do that for the first time in our life. You know, as we look at this passage, I believe that there are really three things that each of us must begin to view differently as a result of understanding that man is in need of a Savior and that there is hope in redemption. The first thing that I believe we need we see is that we need to view the fact that we need Jesus whether for the first time or on a daily basis you know there are some here who you may say hey you know what I'm not sure I've ever truly turned to him for the hope that he is you know if you're here and that's you this morning you know what I want to challenge you it's pretty simple It's really coming to the point where you admit that you're corrupt. You know, if we don't believe that we as human beings are corrupt, we have no need of the Savior. Remember at the beginning I said we can't truly understand who we are until we fully see who he is? You know, that's the idea that we're talking about. It's the idea that if I don't see myself in need of the Savior. I don't need him. You know, this morning I would challenge you, if you're sitting here and feeling the weight that you need him, I believe the first thing that you need to do 
is just admit, you know what? I'm corrupt. The second thing that you need to do, it says that in this passage that you must believe in faith. That's nothing more than saying, God, I'm going to choose your way, realizing I am corrupt, realizing that there is nothing good I can do except through you. And that it's offered freely to those who believe. We cannot truly know who we are until we understand who God is. And we cannot fully understand who God is until we understand who we are. The second part of that is the idea that we need him on a daily basis. Because of the fall of man, we are each corrupt and we each choose daily to sin. You know, oftentimes when we think of this idea of the Savior, we think of it in terms of it's good for my past and it's good for my future, but it's also good for my present because he wants to meet you each and every day to help you overcome the weight that is upon us through sin. The second view that I believe we need to have is we need to understand that without him, there is no hope. You know, when we begin to look at this idea of without him, there is no hope, it affects the way that I look at those around me. You know, I can't expect them and others to respond in a way that pleases Christ until they understand that they need and have received the hope of Christ. You know, when I engage with the world around me and the lens I view it with, I should not view it with anger and frustration, but rather, I should view it with compassion, realizing that I am the one that can bring the lost world, the world that needs Christ, the world that needs the hope of the Savior. I'm the one who can bring that to them. Each one of us need to act and respond and view the world knowing that we have the hope of eternity. The band is going to come and we're going to sing one last song together. And I don't know where you are this morning. You may be sitting here and saying, you know what, I've never given my life to Christ. If that's you and you would like to talk with somebody about that today, I would encourage you immediately after the service, just outside the doors and to the left, there's a room there where people would, would love to talk with you about your relationship with Christ. There are others here who, because of the way the world has pressed in around you, maybe your worldview of man is different. Maybe you're grading it on the curve. Or maybe you're putting yourself in the seat of God. If that's you today, I would encourage you, turn to him wherever you are. Maybe you're here and you're angry. You're frustrated. Maybe you need the hope of eternity that gives you compassionate eyes to see the world around you. Because the world is corrupt. And we have the hope of a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the hope that is only found in you. Lord, I stand here today knowing that I'm corrupt. 
that left to myself, I'm under the weight of sin that I can't get out from under. But I know that I have the hope that only comes through the righteousness of Christ when I choose to follow your path. Lord, I pray that each one of us today would make the decision that we're going to follow you through it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. Help us to worship you well as we close. And we ask it all in your son's name. Amen.